Welcome to the ESG Matters podcast. My name is Amat Gomis, and I'm your host. Today, we have Jim Paul, CEO and co-founder of Sustainability Roundtable Incorporated. Jim founded and built Sustainability Roundtable to help executives in corporate operations and sustainability develop and drive strategies for more sustainable high performance. Welcome to the ESG Matters podcast, Jim. Ahmad, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for for being here. Just to start things off, can you tell us what needs did you see that drove you to create the Sustainability Roundtable? Well, I noticed back after uh, leaving the Gore campaign in, in 2000 and beginning to work in corporate advisory services for ultimately the Trammell Crow Company, that uh, the world's best companies were embracing the sustainability paradigm as a better way to optimize and animate their efforts towards continuous optimization and uh, continuous innovation. And uh, that fascinated me. And I thought I saw an opportunity for a pre-competitive strategic advisory and support service in corporate sustainability. I didn't found Sustainability Roundtable, Inc. to advance that until uh, 2008, after I had uh, enjoyed working in, uh, in commercial real estate and, and uh, specifically uh, corporate advisory services for, for several years, frankly, because uh, I was focused on making money and um, building my ability to make a, a contribution beyond just helping leading corporations understand how to uh, develop strategies for their global real estate and facilities portfolios and, and do transactions, and, and indeed how to make a contribution that was specifically for the good. And, and so it took some years to put that all together. Uh, but the result was on Earth Day uh, 2008, founding uh, Sustainability Roundtable, Inc. One thing I think that's really interesting that you mentioned is that you come from the lens of sustainability from an optimization standpoint. Oftentimes, people think about sustainability as something that you have to go out and achieve because there's all these other pressures on you and not necessarily looking at it from a standpoint of how can we optimize ourselves to be more efficient and be a better part of the business? So I, I'm really, really interested in how you come up and how you think about things when it comes to sustainability in that regard. What ESG goals do you see companies derive the most value when achieving or looking for sustainability initiatives to go after to optimize their own business functions? That's uh, obviously a very important question, Amat. And uh it will differ for different companies in, in different sectors. However, what's common is that every company, indeed every person in every community, now faces a, a manifesting existential challenge in human-caused climate breakdown. And, and that means that anybody who wants to plan smartly for uh, continued or growing business success uh, needs to take seriously this epic challenge. And, and so I, I, I see my team, which is based in, in Boston, helping uh, sustainability executives 
who are mostly based in, in North America with their challenge, which is to help their global enterprises move towards a more sustainable way of doing business in a world that's undergoing a wrenching and um, very dangerous transition that, that it must accomplish to a fossil fuel-free uh, world. And when you talk about manifesting uh, this, this great human crisis, a lot of what you're talking about reminds me that sustainability oftentimes is resilience as well. And how do you plan for a future, both for your company, but also for humanity in many respects, that is more resilient to the climate changes that are occurring currently and the future ones that we will have. So I'm curious when you work with clients and you have this rhetoric and you're talking to them, what has been the reception? Have they sort of drunk the Kool-Aid in the first iteration or is this much more of a learning process for them to understand the opportunity to improve the business from a resilience standpoint and also the largesse of the issue that they're facing? Well, we seek out companies that are uh, science-inspired companies because we found that um, science-inspired companies have enjoyed terrific continued growth in a changing world. So we have developed a particular strength in helping scaling technology companies and scaling life science companies as they grow. And as they grow, one of their central challenges is being able to hire enough extensively educated, super bright people um, every month. You know, it's not irregular for a client of ours to be seeking to, to hire as many as a thousand new employees a quarter. And, and when you're growing at that sort of pace, one of your greatest constraints is the war for talent. And the fact you don't easily command every talented person to, to come join you in, in your business. And, and so what those most sought after, uh, extensively educated, super bright, generally young people uh, care about necessarily matters to the uh, scaling company. And, and if they're a science-inspired scaling company, then their leading executives who set their strategy generally have a, a really impressive understanding of climate science. And uh, unfortunately, anybody who has an impressive understanding of climate science in 2022 is terribly concerned about the, the existential uh, crisis we're facing in human-caused climate breakdown. So those executives one, have a business need to align with the deep interests of the uh, talent, the, the very sought after talent they're hoping to recruit and retain, and two, have a, a personal concern uh, about the, uh, our climate crisis. Consequently, we don't have to sell that type of company on the fact that there's a climate crisis, on the fact that a global business that hopes to be driving margin next year and 10 years from now has to have a, a developed point of view on it and has to be taking action to manage all the associated risks, which are first and foremost, not the physical risks, which are very real, but rather the transition risks of a world that 
has to undergo this this really dramatic change. And that's very true. When you think about the dramatic change and you talk about these science-inspired companies, everyone understands that this solution is not one company coming out forward, providing a one-size-fit-all model to solve the climate crisis. I wonder, have you seen companies that you've worked with or other companies that are also science-inspired collaborate in really unique or interesting ways to help address this impending crisis that we're that we're working towards or working to alleviate? Yes, and that's a great question because you're right, Ahmad. It's different for every uh, company, and and companies have to one acknowledge the breadth and depth of the challenge we've been talking about, but also really examine their corporate purpose. And they're a corporate uh, superpower, as uh, some of our uh, West Coast uh, American uh, companies describe it. What's their functional, unusual excellence that they do better than anybody else? What they describe as what's their superpower? And then try to align what they're doing as it relates to uh, environmental sustainability and specifically human-caused climate breakdown with their corporate purpose and their superpower. And so an example of this would be Intuit. They're uh, the world leader in financial management software for small businesses. And Intuit understands the the breadth and depth of our challenge in in, uh, human-caused climate breakdown. So they recognize that measuring and then um, mitigating their carbon footprint was necessary, but not even remotely sufficient for a world-leading company that was relatively small, about 13,000 when they began this, but still big enough to be quite sophisticated and able to really understand they had to do something if they were going to help their um, employees and customers and investors who cared about this recognize that they were doing something meaningful. And, and so they concluded they wanted not to offset their, their carbon footprint one for one, but instead to offset it 50 to one. So they, they would offset more than 50 times their carbon footprint by partnering with customers to help the customers offset their footprint. And so in this way, they'd really be creating a positive handprint where they really helped address this problem at the scale of their global operation and in how they made money more than how they spent money. So to look at how they could help their customers even more. And and really, I think of them as... um, the best example of a company that uh, is committed, every individual in it, to delighting the customer. And to add uh, help with the climate crisis as another and additional way to delight the customer. And, and so that's, that's the fundamental approach and a wonderful example of it that, that we really encourage. And that's really great to hear that a company is doing what you just mentioned with Intuit, understanding that their real value is not just improving their own operations, but leveraging their experiences and leveraging what they can to improve the carbon footprint of multiple, in this case, businesses that they work with, oftentimes that are small, who may not have the skill or the ability to do it on their own. So that's a really interesting and I think 
model that other companies that are also business to business focused can do as well. I also wonder when you think about the climate crisis and you talked about the science inspired companies, when you talk to them, are there certain blind spots that you are highlighting, understanding that they do understand the science and climate behind it? and the drivers, but are there certain blind spots that you often have to make them aware of? And I ask that because when someone's working in in a business, whether it be a science-inspired business or one that has very little inspiration, and they're pushing for more sustainable activities to occur, oftentimes the value of bringing in a, an organization like, like yours, uh, the Sustainability Roundtable, is that you get a fresh perspective and somebody else to echo the things that you've said to management or to executives that need to happen. So I wonder, have you seen any specific blind spots that you typically have to help educate folks within an organization? Sure. We, we, we talk of uh, economies of intellect. There, there's certainly economies of scale and, and we help clients with that in, in aggregated procurement and bringing together companies that by themselves, as big as they are, can't cause utility, new utility-scale renewable energy. Well, we, we bring them together so that they can. And so companies specifically like Intuit and Akamai and Autodesk, which are all not among the world's largest companies, you know, they're more like 10,000 to 20,000 employees, they can achieve economies of scale uh, by coming together in uh, the procurement of renewable energy and thereby actually be able to transact what they expect to be cost positive uh, long-term uh, renewable energy contracts. In a different way, they also benefit from economies of intellect where, for instance, into its example of being incredibly uh, climate positive, 50 times their carbon footprint is definitely of interest to, to the other members and an example they cite to their senior management. And that really changes sort of the Overton window, as they say, the breadth of considered possible alternatives, because they can point to an example and actually have the, all the relevant details on what different uh, companies are doing that's, that's so impressive. But topically, Amon, specific sort of facts do companies regularly lack, and that is they, they generally don't understand how urgent our challenge is. And, and I'll make a distinction between the sustainability executive, if there is one, who generally she will understand it, and the company's C-suite. Often the company's C-suite is over 40, and they understand climate science and are generally very concerned about it. But they haven't focused on how the, the brief window of opportunity to secure a livable future, which is a phrase I, I take from the last IPCC report released only weeks ago, is closing. You know, the, 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 the IPCC's last report described it as a, a brief and closing window of time to secure a livable future. And, and to be specific about that, as, as Greta Thunberg, you know, regularly and appropriately is, the IPCC special report in 1.5C released in 2018 did provide guidance to policymakers and, and a specific carbon budget 
in various pathways to staying under 1.5C, and therein uh, made clear that in order to make it more likely than not that we would avoid the most catastrophic effects of climate change, that specifically include passing tipping points to self-accelerating irreversible global ecological collapse, we would have to reduce global emissions by uh, 45% over 2010 baseline by 2030. And so that's really about 95 months from now. And at that point, it's not as if uh, the IPCC is predicting Armageddon, but they are specifically predicting that we may w- will be subject to passing these uh, tipping points to irreversible self-accelerating ecological collapse. And, and that is not in any way acceptable. And it's that specific sort of um, urgency that even the sophisticated executives in the, in the global C-suite don't understand. It's the sustainability uh, executive's job in a way and maybe one of uh, her, his most important jobs, to get communicated so that those um, C-level executives can can get behind the company's effort to make a positive difference uh, in this challenge. And you bring up a lot of great points, Jim. One of the things I think when you talked about the IPPC report and you talked about Intuit doing all this great work with their value chain, there has been that missing component especially in the U.S., when we think about the role of policymakers or the role of government. Uh, Recently, the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission released a fact sheet regarding their enhancement and standardization of climate-related disclosures. And I wonder, from your standpoint, if you could tell a policymaker, these are the things that you need to do in order to really help alleviate or reverse the climate crisis especially in the next 95 months, these are the things that I would want you to do. What would that look like for you? Well, I think, well, you, you bring up a great point, Amat, which is that um, the other area, if I'd say the number one issue that companies miss in regard to the need to move towards more sustainable business is, as I mentioned, the urgency of our challenge. The, the second item they miss is what you're bringing up now, which is that public policy is more important than anything they can do in their own operations and related that they have a role to play in public policy. They have agency because global companies, in particular, fast growth global companies are respected in our culture. Their, their executives are viewed as, as quite smart and competent, and they are. And so they, they have more of a voice than they recognize if they're willing to to use it. And and so we do encourage them to use their voice and share, you know, beyond the, the, the confines of the of the company stakeholders, beyond those most sought after potential employees I, I mentioned, or or even the um, very sought after climate conscious investors, beyond them to, to speak to offer some societal leadership on this issue of uh, what climate science has revealed to us. Um, So in terms of what the specific recommendation would be to the sustainability executive, it would be to 
share with her that, that we've seen wonderful examples of communication strategies that are grounded in science. And when they, they speak to what public policy is required, they ask that it be science-based public policy. And indeed, now after Glasgow, we can, um, we can acknowledge that the 1.5C special report has been adopted really in the, in the Glasgow Climate Compact. So now, Ahmad, it's possible just simply to demand that public authority at every level align with relevant UN guidance on a science-based response to climate change to specifically come into compliance with the Glasgow Climate Pact immediately. And that has not really been done at scale yet. You don't hear um, a chorus of corporate voices saying, we want the public authorities we deal with at every level to come into compliance with the UN's relevant guidance on climate change the way we expect companies to in, in regard to, let's say, forced labor or LGBTQ rights. You know, then we expect corporate uh, leaders to demand that uh, the public authorities they, they interface with come into compliance with relevant international law and international guidance. And that's what's, what's applicable here because, of course, there is an enforceable law on this at an at international level yet. But there is very clear guidance and virtually no country is in uh, meaningful compliance with it at this time. Well, I think you have summed it up really well, Jim, that we need all hands on deck to solve the climate crisis and to avert catastrophic deterioration of our planet. Uh, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the ESG Matters podcast today. And just to close out, I wonder if someone wanted to get more information from you or contact you, what's the best way that they could contact you? Well, I, I suggest they visit our website at www.sustainround.com. That's S-U-S-T-A-I-N-R-O-U-N-D.com. There you go. Thank you so much, Jim. And I hope you all listening have a great rest of your day. And I hope you learned something today. Take care. Thank, thank you, Amat. Really appreciate it. I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the ESG Matters podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe to the ESG Matters podcast on your choice of podcast platforms. This podcast is brought to you by Amat Gumis and theme music by Dexter Thomas.